Welcome, everybody, to episode three of Not for Attribution, uh, Manitoba's foremost podcast on politics, government, and public policy. I'm not allowed to say first <laughs> or, or only uh, because we did it. We had an, a, a team do an exhaustive research, and there may have been one before us. There may be another one going on somewhere now, but we don't care because this this is the uh, the best connected podcast is that there you go i think you can go with that okay best connected uh i'm uh, i'm with uh, fellow columnist tom broadbeck and no giggle this time and uh jessica patello urbanski legislative reporter man we got a lot of stuff right now we may do we may have to do this one like in two segments you know like uh, a and b um we're going to talk about um the leaders debate that was uh, broadcast by uh, three Winnipeg uh, networks uh, this past uh, or the previous week. And um, we're going to talk about poll results. Uh, Free Press and CTV have brand new poll results out um, that are very interesting, although, you know, are not really seismic in terms of the uh, how they're going to do or uh, affect the election. And then uh, we have a feature interview. They said it couldn't be done. Uh, Premier, former uh, Premier Gary Philman is going to do, I think, the first interview that he's done about politics since he left government. I don't think, can you remember, I don't think so. The, the only one that I know of is I did an interview with him uh, on the 10-year anniversary of the 1997 flood, but it was specific to the flood and what happened during the flood. And it wasn't about politics, it was about floods. So apart from that, I think you're right. Yeah. So it's uh, it's it's really quite a, uh, quite a week and a lot of stuff to unpack. Uh, you know, I know this will take a little bit of time, but could we have a moment of silence for leaders' debates? Um, I, I, I think if this year doesn't kill them outright, uh, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, really what will. It, it, was, it was bad. I mean, and, and I think they've been getting worse over the years, and they may have TV debates uh, under the current circumstances and under the current TV industry. Um, it's really tough. They're trying to shoehorn debates into a 50-minute uh, time frame. Um, this particular—I don't want to pile on—but this particular format was horrible, where you've got leaders asking each other questions, which is just something you don't do because it just gives them an opportunity to make lame speeches, and each one of them did it. And the questions were lame, and the answers were lame, and they lamely talked <laughs> over each other afterwards. So it was horrible. Wow, negative. Yeah, it was bad. I thought it was bad. I didn't think it was that bad. Mm -hmm. But I guess you guys have more experience in terms of watching these debates. But I thought it was, I liked the pace. 50 minutes was a little too short, in my opinion. But it kept the leaders thinking on their feet. They had to be off the cuff and quick in their remarks. Jeff Keel had a great curveball question about edibles that really showed how quick they can be on their feet um, in terms of whether people should be able to smoke or eat, consume edibles in public places uh, once those are legalized over the next year. Um, but yeah, I liked it. And I thought the journalists did a really good job of keeping the uh, leaders uh, holding their feet to the fire, so to speak, and using their follow-up questions to try and actually get some answers and... Uh, there was a lot packed into that debate uh, in a very short amount of time. 
Well, you know, uh, I, I didn't think it was uh, a great format, uh, uh, but I think I blame the politicians mostly for abusing the format. I think the, the asking and answering questions are fine as long as you ask the bloody question and you answer the bloody question. And, the, you know, right off the bat, um, Brian Pallister and Wab Canoe decided they were going to ignore the format and, and kind of, it was kind of, you know, political debate meets freestyle jazz. It was horrible. Uh, as a lot of freestyle jazz is actually, and uh, yeah, you know, I just I thought it was all the best intentions. I think, uh, you know, and I wrote this uh, in a column. If if television broadcasters want the gravitas of hosting a leaders' debate, like I, I don't want to question their dedication to the you know to democracy and things like that. But if they want to do it, then do the bloody thing properly, right? Because this you know spending ten minutes off the top to give us weather and traffic reports like seriously you can't make an, an exception once a year to just kind of like hey how are you you know we're devoting our hour today if you want a recap of the news go online to www whatever and that's the, the other thing too is the broadcasters are no longer the only show in town for this kind of a format right the you know there, there are social media options for broadcasting these things and i think it's going to have to gravitate towards that over time because under the current financial business model of of, of tv uh, networks they're just not that interested in it i mean they're trying to shoehorn this in between high rating shows and 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 they're almost doing it reluctantly not trying to question their commitment to the democratic process but let's face it the online platforms that we could start i don't know what they would look like who would run them but you could do it far more cost effective effectively uh, people could watch it stream it whenever they want young people don't watch tv hello um, it's it's just going to move in that direction. I really I don't know who's going to do it or how it's going to look, but it's going to move. It's going to have direction. to be on a podcast. I think we're yeah, just going to have to we'll have to get them in them here ourselves. Uh, yeah, we, but I like the visual though. People need to see the people. No, uh, you know it's not. I love radio. I love podcasts. Um, and 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 there was a period where TV debates worked when there was more time devoted to them. It's depending on the format. But I think people need to see the individuals. You need to see their faces. Two words: video podcast. Yeah. Absolutely. There you, go. It, you know, and it like we, we have done live We have to stream. get dressed up, that means. Yeah. We can't wear like shorts and stuff. Okay, so it is true. I'm still wearing shorts. <laughs> you know, honestly, September 1st or the first uh, series of three days where the daytime temperature is below 10 degrees, the pants come out. But That's when you give it up? That's when I give it up, but it, it we haven't reached that yet. Um, the, the other thing, though, is, is that it also, lamentably, uh, could be the only debate of this campaign. And this, this one, as mad as I am about, the, you know, this uh, event the other night, particularly cutting Dugal Lamont off in mid-sentence. So that was could, brutal. Um, but uh, is uh, that uh, really uh, Brian Pallister and the progressive conservatives are really pushing the bell jar approach here. He didn't do the bloody debate in Brandon and he loves going to Brandon to talk to people. Isn't Brandon? Those are his people, aren't they? And they need Brandon East. Brandon East is a, yeah, is, a, a is a riding that's in play. You would think they'd want to be out there to try to hang on to that because it's not necessarily one they're going to keep. One more thing on the Winnipeg debate, the CBC debate. Um, I think it needed opening statements. Uh, the politicians didn't get time off the top mm. to say their piece, and mm. then it devolved into leaders asking each other questions and yep. crosstalk, and had yep. they had that initial 30, 45 seconds to introduce themselves, I think it would have been a, less, a little a result, less aggressive. As a result, you didn't hear from James Bedham for about 10 minutes in, mm -hmm. I think it was. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, Brandon was a shocker for me. Um, I get the only doing one debate uh, with Pallister and trying to keep the leader strategy, stay out ahead and not make any gaffes. But it's really disappointing because there's so much going on outside of Winnipeg uh, in terms of this election. We're really not mm. hearing a lot outside the perimeter. And they're out there. I mean, Pallister's out in Brandon. They're on the road. They're they're driving around in their van, their van. And uh, <laughs> you might have to talk about the van, <laughs> but they're not doing debates because yeah. why take the risk, right? I guess they figure the risk reward uh, is such that they don't need to do them. Uh, they don't want to do them. I don't think he wants to do them. But he is out on the road glad-handing and, you know, kissing babies and whatnot. I, I think, yeah, but, I, I, you know, and I think, though, we've allowed governing uh, leaders and parties, uh, incumbents, to, to basically run roughshod over, over uh, debate formats and frequency. And it's just, it's, it's, uh, it, it's gotten ridiculous. It really shouldn't be up to an individual leader or party to decide how many debates they're going to be. It needs to be established um, independently. And, um, you know, because, sorry, go ahead. Do you guys think Brandon, the Chamber of Commerce, should have the debate without Pallister? I think they should have it anyway. Yeah. Um, I, don't think, I don't think leaders or parties should ever be compelled to participate. I think we live in a democracy. I think people should be free to campaign as they see fit. And you, you don't want to go to, you don't want to attend um, leaders' debates. Uh, you don't want to participate in that part of it. You, I think you do so at your own peril. Um, is it, is it, is it good coverage to have a rubber chicken, uh, at a desk? I don't think it helps you. Um, I think people expect you to come out and be accountable for your time in office or what you would like to do if you did get into office. Um, I don't like the, I don't like the, the forcing. I don't mind, I don't mind the ground rules, but I, I, I I have, I'm uncomfortable with saying, you know, you must come to these debates. Uh, You see, now, uh, the the counter argument to that, which conveniently I'm here to provide, is that, you know, we're in an era of so, such low voter engagement and turnout. And, you know what, even people I know who do not really spend a lot of time uh, looking or talking about politics talk about the debates. And it's, it's one of those moments where it really does drive, even if it's just for 10 minutes. I got so many emails from people saying, you know, uh, I only tuned in for a few minutes, whatever. But they sent me this big, long note, uh, you know, obviously provoking a lot of thoughts. A lot of them admitted they hadn't voted. A couple said they were going to vote based on the results of it. So I think that that's, you know, if voter turnout was at 75% plus, I would agree that, you know, it should be kind of a a la carte thing. But, you know, it's not. And and so, and I think debates drive engagement. So I think more people that saw debates like the one on Wednesday might drive it below 50%. We, that's why we want a do-over. <laughs> we want a do-over. I'm do afraid the, do of the what the voter turnout is going to be in this election. Ugh. It was, what, 57% uh, last election? And that should have been a much higher one because it's a time for a change election where you normally get larger turnouts. Prior to that, 53, 54% during the Dewar days. Hasn't been in the 60s since the 90s, like 95, 99 election was up in the mid to high 60s, but it's never been back to that. We're, well, we're, we're, now, we're now flirting with 50% uh, voter turnout. And, and I fear this election, and I hope I'm wrong, it might be around 50%. Yeah, no, I think that, and that's a good dovetail into the poll. Um, uh, Winnipeg Free Press, CTV, Pro Research Poll. 
um, which uh, shows that at least in the early, the first half of the election, there wasn't, uh, unsurprisingly, there wasn't a lot of movement. We're seeing poll results that are um, very consistent with actually what we saw prior to the election. Jessica, do you want to run us through the, the results? Sure. And these results were collected between August 13th and 24th, so just after the writ period started on the 12th. So they're pretty much in keeping with what we've seen uh, over the past year for provincial parties deciding and leading voters uh, across all of Manitoba. 40% are in favor of the PCs, 29% going for the NDP, 18% for the Liberals, and 10% for the Greens, 2% for the Manitoba Party, and 1% for other. Um, but back in Winnipeg, it's a lot closer. PCs have 33% support, NDP 32%, Liberals 21%, Greens 12%, and Manitoba Party 2 and others 1%. Th those are uh, pretty, certainly within the margin of error uh, to pre-writ polls. Um, now, I don't think anybody really expects there to be a lot of voter move, movement in the first two weeks of a campaign. You know, if there is going to be movement, it's in the last week of the campaign, maybe the last 48 hours of the campaign. Um, so, but, you know, I think the, the reason why we're not going to see a lot of movement for these numbers, I mean, like, we still don't know how efficient the votes are. We don't know, um, you know, for example, if the NDP have much of a machine left to get out their vote, something they've traditionally been very good at. But, you know, uh, I think when you look at these results, what you see setting up is a low voter turnout election. Uh, and, uh, you, know, we're, we're, you know, we're probably going to see an easy victory by the PCs. And the fact that the NDP and Tories are virtually tied in, in Winnipeg is good news for the Tories. I mean, that's all they ask for is for their popular vote to be tied with the NDP mm -hmm. in the city. That gives them enough to get the seats they need in Winnipeg, and then they clean up outside of Winnipeg. They, I would imagine, would be relatively happy with these numbers. The NDP would really have liked to have seen much better numbers than that in Winnipeg. Um, and, and the Liberals as well. They... Uh, I thought maybe they'd get a little bit more of a boost out of their productivity. They've been working very hard. I mean, they, they've almost, you know, they've, they have enough announcements to cover two writ periods, I think. Um, I think they've spent the budget three times, but um, they, they've been working hard. And yep. they've, had, they've come up with some, you know, pretty good creative uh, uh, campaign announcements. And they're not getting anything. They're getting no return. I mean, you know... 15, 18, 20 percent is is uh, overall. I think they're at 18 percent overall. Um, is is just not good enough for them. I mean, they they need to be well into the to the mid 20s to start winning seats, right? Yeah. Beyond that, two, three, four seats. They they really need to get to you know 25 percent and up to to start winning some seats. I'm I'm just going to uh, point out something that I didn't point out when I was supporting the nature of compelled debates, which is that uh, parties like the Liberal Party um, stand to benefit the most. If you, if you do force everybody out into two or three debates, inevitably, a guy like, like Dugald Lamont, uh, I think, I think, looked the best of all the leaders in the debate. I mean, everybody's going to have uh, different um, assessments of their ideas, but uh, he was better in that format. Uh, he had, uh, he knew how to get sharp, short, you know, digs in. Mm -hmm. He had the best line of the night, I think, with uh, 
you know, it's it's not courageous to cut life-saving drugs. And then he, you know, went right on with his... So, uh, yeah. He was the only one who seemed to get under Pallister's skin, too, at one point where Pallister turned to him and uh, asked him to be quiet so he could finish his uh, response to a question. But I was going to mention that um, in terms of second-choice support, uh, the Liberals are... I think around 46% in terms of NDP voters. So if anything were to go wrong with the NDP this week or over the next 10 days, the liberals might have a chance of picking up a few more supporters there. Well, and, and the, the other half of the, of the poll um, uh, that we're allowed to talk about right now is the, uh, the leaders' uh, standings. And uh, this is, uh, by all accounts, might be one of the most unusual elections ever because what we have is uh, the number one party led by a man with the largest negative um, uh, popularity deficit, uh, challenged only, really, and not really, but challenged only by uh, the leader of the second place party who has uh, not, not nearly as high uh, negatives, but is still has a net negative score among uh, survey respondents. So um, do, you ever, do you ever remember a guy who was less popular than his party winning two majority governments in a row? Like, I, I think we may be making statistical history for all the wrong reasons here, but still. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, obviously, people voting for the Tories that don't like Brian Pallister. And I've heard from Tories, uh, organizers and, and whatnot, who, who hear that at the door. You know, we don't necessarily like Brian Pallister. Uh, we're going to vote for you guys. We've always voted Tory, or you know, we're voting for your party. We're voting for your candidate. We like your candidate, um, but we don't like your leader. Uh, and 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 they are hearing that at the door. the The approval ratings in the poll are about the same. They all have around forty forty one percent, which is interesting. But Pallister's disapproval rating is the highest, and um, not that surprising though. I mean, he's he's a guy. He's got a pretty prickly personality. Um, you know, uh, the crazy eyes come out as they did against Dougald during the, you know, the, the, it's just, it's not a great look. He looks angry, right? And um, I don't think people like that look. And uh, that's just how he looks. That's just, that's, that's Brian Pallister. And he, he's not a likable, lovable guy. No, and he would make the point that he doesn't care. He doesn't like, care. No, he doesn't care about it. And you know... Well, well, I, I, you know what? I think he does care. Do no. you think you you really think he doesn't care? I don't know. He says, He's he says that, but Him everybody and wants his to party be loved. Party are on us all the time about what <laughs> photos we're choosing for the paper uh, of how they look in the paper. They're on it about appearance. Absolutely, they've come to uh, newspapers and said, "Why are you running pictures that make his eyes look crazy?" They care. Well, yeah, even the, the David McLaughlin, the Tory uh, campaign manager, tweeted out like a this you know plaintive whine about oh why are they always picking the worst photos of you know of, of our leader well and i pointed out that it's newspaper tradition to pish, pick the worst photos of everybody in the newspaper <laughs> including staff i mean just you look at you've got a nice headshot you guys both have a nice headshot mine's awful it's actually hard to get a good shot of palster i mean i've it taken is. a lot of pictures of him and 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 nine out of ten you get kind of this crazy looking eyes face stern it's jaw. just for whatever yeah. reason he's not photogenic and you and i don't know why they come out like that but they do it's just you know it's uh, a 54 percent um uh disapproval rating uh, according to our poll results uh and it is true he has a 40 percent approval uh canoe is 41 lamont is 42 James Bedone is 36. The, the only other thing, too, that I find remarkable is that the unsure category for uh, 
uh, Brian Pallister is so incredibly 6%? low. 6%? You know how they say, yeah. <laughs> oh, you know, he's a love him or hate him guy. Well, we found that guy, yeah. uh, empirically proven. Um, you know, uh, even yeah, even 16% of respondents were unsure whether they liked or disliked Wab Canoe. 31% are unsure about Dugal Lamont. Uh, 45% unsure about James Badome. Um yeah, but 6%, only 6%. So the, within the margin of error of the poll, that's pretty much everybody had an opinion uh, about uh, about Brian Pallister. But it doesn't appear to be a drag on his party. And that's the thing that I don't get. Um, you know, like maybe it's just, it's they're, they're just too early in the electoral cycle in Manitoba for a, a really viable other alternative for... You know, a lot of that soft support that the Tories get on top of their core, the ones that give them a majority government, it's, there's just, you know. I guess when we get you get back to that, you know, that debate about how do people vote? Do they vote for parties? Do they vote for leaders? They don't usually vote for the candidate. Um, you know, in, in many cases, in many cases, uh, people are voting for, for the party. Uh, perhaps they like what the party's doing. Perhaps they like the general direction that the policy is going, but they don't necessarily like the leader. And uh, as I said, uh, I, I am actually looking for examples of this in other provinces. I haven't found one yet, uh, where because usually parties that win majorities have relatively popular leaders. Although we've seen some federal polling recently that showed very high disapproval ratings for all the leaders. Very similar dynamic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's probably a good time now to go to uh, Gary Philman. Uh, and uh, again, I just want to underline that, uh, you know, the, the former uh, premier has been very, very guarded uh, in talking about politics again. And why don't you just give us a, a quick preview. What, what did you cover in your interview? With yeah, we talked about the 1988 election and the events leading up to it, which, of course, was the, um, the then NDP government falling um, when one of their own MLAs voted uh, against the NDP budget. Uh, dramatic events leading up to it, uh, really interesting the challenges that all the parties faced uh, as a result of the SNAP election, and of course the NDP having to elect a new leader, Gary Dewar, right in the middle of a writ period. Uh, Gary was there. He was on the floor a few meters away from the late Howard Pauley, then Premier. Uh, he saw it all, um, and he talks about it. It's really, really fun. Well, that's fantastic. So let's we'll go now to Tom Broadbeck's uh, interview with former uh, Tory Premier Gary Philman. We're pleased to have with us uh, today the former Manitoba Premier, Gary Philman, who was Premier of Manitoba from 1988 to 1999. Thank you so much for joining us today, Gary. You're welcome, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're in a provincial election right now, and those who are participating in that are always making history. You were part of a really interesting election back in 1988, uh, probably the most dramatic um, uh, provincial election in Manitoba's history, at least in the modern era, not only because of the election itself, uh, but what happened in the lead-up to that election, which was somewhat unprecedented in Canadian politics, of course. That was the year that the then-NDP government uh, was defeated on, um, uh, on a confidence motion. Uh, they had a, a one-seat majority, and it was your motion, the non-confidence motion, that opposition parties uh, almost always uh, introduce at budget time. Uh, you were there, uh, sitting just a few meters across the floor from uh, the late Howard Pauley, then Premier. Uh, what was that like 
did you guys have any idea that Jim Walding, the NDP MLA who voted against his own government, was going to vote the way he did? We had no idea. And uh, I remember, uh, I think Jim Downey, who was my uh, deputy premier sitting next to me, and uh, he literally jumped out of his seat. He uh, was so shocked. And, and uh, that was the case right across the board with our people because, the, as you say, this is the most unusual thing that ever happens. And uh, uh, it took place on a budget vote, and uh, we uh, disagreed with the budget. Uh, it happened to be, I believe, the uh, highest uh, uh, the highest deficit that had ever been brought in to that point in time. And um, they had just gone through the NDP, a uh, major upheaval over the fact that uh, they were raising auto pack rates by about 20%, which, uh, again, uh, was a lightning uh, rod in, in the province. So there were a lot of things at that time that were unusual, and uh, a lot of conflict being raised in the overall electorate. And lo and behold, there's a sudden election. And it was absolutely sudden. Right then and there, the government was defeated. And we were into an election campaign. And you may recall the circumstances of that as well, which were that Howard Pauley decided not to run as leader. And so there, the... Uh, time for an election period was uh, anywhere from uh, 35 days to 60 days. That was what the legislation at the time called for. And uh, when he decided that he wasn't going to contest, uh, he also uh, asked that uh, the, um, I guess it would be the uh, lieutenant governor of the day, that um, they give a lengthy period of time so that they could have uh, a, a leadership campaign to begin with, maybe get a bump in the uh, population because they got a lot of publicity out of it. And so I think it was 58 days that the campaign was. Whatever it was, uh, it was very close to 60, and it was a long campaign for everybody. I, I know campaigns are difficult at the best of times, but this happened, uh, as you know, at the beginning of March, and so the entire... Uh, month of March was spent campaigning and like most marches the weather was totally unpredictable and we ended up uh, twice having a, a, a trip to Swan River for instance cancelled because in those days it was all by bus uh, and and so our bus would go around the province and uh, go to the different areas and twice we were headed for Swan River and there was a major storm and we couldn't get there so it was an unusual campaign in that respect. And, of course, Dewar did uh, become the um, uh, leader of the party at that time, and uh, it didn't seem to necessarily cause any change in the fortunes uh, because uh, the NDP were totally defeated uh, in the final analysis. Uh, the numbers, as I recall, were uh, 25 seats for the Conservatives, 20 for the Liberals, and 12 for the NDP. So... Uh, it made for quite a uh, devastating loss for the NDP and uh, Sharon Carstairs running up the middle, essentially, and uh, gaining 20 seats. Uh, so it was a very, very different campaign. So you had no idea you're going into a campaign. There's, all, there's always some, I guess, element of election readiness uh, going on, but um, usually you have some idea 
that there's an election coming. And when there's a majority government, you know, you, you sort of have an idea of a timeline. Um, serious, this is a snap election. Suddenly, the lieutenant governor is asked to dissolve the legislative assembly. It's a it's a it's a lengthy writ period, which helps you in your in your in preparing. But you've got to put policies together, and you've got to put uh, a, whole, a whole you know there's a whole there's a whole uh, list of things that you have to do to get ready for an election. Uh, how how difficult was it to to get that machine going uh, when you had no idea an election was coming. And you had a chance of forming government because you knew that the, the sitting government was in trouble. The, the premier resigns. You've got a real shot now to, to form government. There's no question it was extremely difficult because all sorts of decisions had to be made. Uh, candidates, uh, you know, it was two years away from what would have been the normal time for the election. And... Um, for the most part, we just simply didn't have all that planning uh, done ahead of time. We may have thought about uh, candidates, but in many cases, uh, uh, it was a big shock, and we had to move and mobilize all sorts of uh, uh, elements of, of the election uh, organization to get, get right onto it. And those were the biggest factors. And when I talk about you know not having... Uh, a, not being able to go up to Swan River, I think probably one of them was to get there for the nomination. And uh, so uh, there were many cases in which uh, uh, we just had to jump to the pump and get, get the right people in, involved. Those were the And then the policy side, which you've referenced, uh, in this case, it was pretty straightforward. The uh, electorate had been absolutely shocked at the huge increase in, in the uh, auto pack rates at the uh, very uh, large deficit, unheard of uh, up until then, and they wanted stability back. So w when we talked about uh, um, coming up with a balanced budget within two terms of government, uh, that was a major force. Uh, I remember some uh, uh, <laughs> previous uh, um, uh, journalists, um, I don't know if I should name one, but uh, she said that uh, it was voodoo economics uh, to be able to say that you could balance the budget uh, uh, without having uh, major cuts to services. And uh, we said that's why we're going to do it over two terms. We're not going to do it overnight, and we're going to be able to uh, look at, the, at all of the areas of government and uh, find uh, ways in which we could save money, and we did. Did you have a thought at the time that you had a good shot at forming a majority government? I mean, you had the Liberals surging. Uh, the dynamic was a little bit different. It was truly was a you know three-party race. Uh, Sharon Carstairs and, and and the Liberal machine were 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 right there with you. Um, you know, it, it was almost anybody's to win. Um, did you at the time think we've got a shot? You end up winning a minority government. We know that uh, you win a majority two years later in 1990. But in 88, uh, did you think you had a good shot at a majority? Uh, we absolutely did because at the time, uh, we well, there was one liberal seat in the House uh, and we had, uh, I believe, 26 seats. So we were just so close to uh, a majority that uh, we believed it was uh, something that, that was in, within our grasp. Having said that, um, uh, Mrs. Carstairs uh, played to the sort of anti-politician uh, politician role and she uh, said uh, she was different and I, I even remember the, the debate that took place uh, uh, of the leaders and uh, 
Um, we were having a bit of a tete-a-tete with Mr. Pauly, or sorry, Mr. Dewar by then, and uh, she stepped in and said, oh, boys, boys, uh, calm down, and, and she wasn't going to be a regular politician. Well, it turned out that uh, she had her own challenges because they had to scramble to, to uh, get their candidates together, and uh, when they did, they had a lot of inexperienced people, and although they had some real talent, people like Reg Alcock and uh, Jim Carr, both of whom became federal uh, cabinet ministers, despite that, um, she had a lot of inexperience in people who were proposing things that were, seemed to be totally impractical and uh, um, were actually a bit of a joke at times. And so she stepped in and said, well, I'm dealing with an adult daycare here. Uh, uh, every day I go in and I have to, to, to teach them. And uh, there were times in which, in question period, which, as you know, is uh, 45 minutes long, she was the only person on the opposition side who asked a question, which is kind of outrageous. Uh, you would think there would be somebody within her caucus who might have uh, reasonable questions mm -hmm. to pose and uh, uh, issues to raise. So uh, it was uh, sort of a, a one-person band, and, and uh, that was uh, in large part uh, part of the reason why ultimately they started to fade, and um, Gary Dewar and the NDP started to come forward, and we got a majority government for a couple terms after that. So it, it was an interesting time, and uh, uh, the whole change that took place, in fact, that was probably the last time uh, in the recent memory that uh, uh, there was, it was truly a three-party situation in the legislature. Now, you had federal, a lot of, these were heady times nationally for Canada, too. I mean, federally, nationally, we, we had Meech Lake going on, and, and there, there were a lot of things to, for all first ministers in, in uh, Canada to, to think about, not just locally, and, and you're thrust into this suddenly. Absolutely. Uh, uh, the Meech Lake Accord was one, probably the first one. There were a few others that I, I could name, but uh, uh, the, in case of Meech Lake, there was a, a ticking time bomb because uh, everything, uh, every province had to uh, pass a resolution approving it by uh, June 23rd, 1990, I think it was. And uh, although Howard Pauley had signed the Meech Lake Accord, he hadn't introduced it to the legislature for approval. So it then became a firestorm across the province. And, uh, uh, and was this a big issue during the campaign? Was this something that Manitobans were talking about and you had to have a, a strong position on? You know, I didn't think it was a big issue. And uh, uh, ours was a wait-and-see position. I didn't take any strong position saying I was for or against it. Uh, I probably believed that because 10 premiers and the prime minister had all agreed to it, uh, it was certainly something we should uh, look at very, very carefully and deal with. Uh, but in the end, uh, what caused our great uh, upheaval here in Manitoba was that uh, Quebec, uh, in response to a Supreme Court decision saying that um, uh, their language law uh, violated the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, that they were going to use the notwithstanding clause and impose it anyway. And uh, uh, there was a strong uh, group of people who didn't like the accord to begin with, but when that happened, 
it just was a, a grass fire. It was an anti, a bit of an anti-Quebec sentiment. Absolutely. What, what, what was it like running an election back in 88 compared to now? I know you're not involved in elections, but your last one was in 99. Things have evolved so much with technology and, and social media, and, and it, um, it's changed so much. Uh, how different was it running a, a campaign in 88 compared to now? It was entirely different because um, we had to, uh, when we were particularly touring the province, stop in and phone back to our headquarters to find out what was happening, uh, uh, whether the opposition parties had put out a news release or any numbers of things that might have happened. Uh, there was no instant communication. In fact, I don't even think at that... Well, I guess we did have those big uh, uh, cell phones that uh, yeah. that were mobile, but... Uh, uh, they were very limited, and, and, and uh, you know, coverage throughout the province was limited. So it was an entirely different way of campaigning. And as I mentioned, the bus was the big deal. We were traveling everywhere on the bus, including within the city and outside throughout the province. And so uh, there was virtually no third-party advertising, another thing. Uh, so the advertising was quite limited. It was uh, amongst uh, the parties and within the budgets of the parties. And, you know, there were obviously support groups along the way. For um, uh, uh, our party, there would have been some business support groups. Uh, obviously, the unions would be heavily in favor of New Democratic uh, Party. But the reality was that it was a very, very different scenario than you see today. Did you have many leaders debates back then? We had many leaders' debates back then. We had uh, major ones not only here on television, but in Brandon and in various different interest groups. Uh, uh, I would think that the Teachers Society probably had one, and I I know that uh, the Chamber of Commerce had one. And so you and Gary Dewar and Sharon Carstair are squaring off multiple times multiple in, in times. 1988. We knew each other's lines. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, radio, town halls, TV, more, more than one TV, I guess. Um, more than one for sure in yeah. Winnipeg. I'm not sure if the one in Brandon was mm -hmm. televised. Yeah. But we definitely then had radio, radio debates. Right. Uh, certainly CJOB, uh, as I can recall, had a major debate. And so, yeah, there were, that was, I guess, the way in which people would get their information as opposed to all of this third-party advertising. Mm -hmm. And, of course, no social media. I mean, you have to... No you, such you relied, thing. No. You relied on traditional uh, advertising and, and legacy media and whoever wanted to invite you to a community hall for, for a debate. We would have uh, debates in community halls. We had uh, that happening. We had, um, of course, when I talk about the bus, uh, it was because we had to go, we felt, uh, and I felt, to every single constituency. Uh, we had to uh, uh, go door-to-door, -door. and uh, I loved door-to-door, -door and I believed that it was the strongest way to get your message across, and so... And you didn't have apps like they have now oh, on, their little, on their phones to, to, uh, to put all the information in to know where your supporters are and identify, identify them all for E-Day, all, all by paper. Everything was done on paper, and you had the last election's results. You knew um, who had a sign on the lawn for the other parties or uh, for your party. You had... All that was kept on paper, and if you had really good campaigners and campaign managers, 
then you might have really extensive information. I had reams and reams because I had a campaign manager by the name of Bob Lane, uh, who uh, was absolutely an expert in keeping enormous detail on everything. So sign locations, contributors, uh, uh, positive indications at the door, all those things were done. Uh, and uh, he would combine those with the telephone surveys that we were doing, and he had a lot of detail, but uh, uh, nothing like what we have today. What was the feeling like when you won, became the premier of well, Manitoba? you know, in, in my case, it was euphoria on the one hand at becoming the premier, but concern at the fact that it was going to be a minority government and we were going to have to ensure that on any issue we had to have the support of at least one other party in the legislature or some uh, votes from another party. Now, we had one little advantage there in that uh, the NDP's results were, had, were so devastating to them that Mr. Dewar had to be very, very careful. I mean, if an election were called and triggered quickly, um, his his losses were mostly to the Liberals, and they were seeming to have some some uh, gaining momentum. And if there were an instant election, he'd probably have lost more votes and more seats. And so uh, he had to be very careful as to what they did. So on, on um, votes of confidence, uh, um, I, there might have been a few times in which they voted with us uh, but for the most part, they just had people absent so that they kept the numbers uh, uh, such that they just uh, got close, but we always won the vote. Right. Interesting times. Interesting times. Thank Tom. you so much, Gary, for joining us today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Nice to see you again. Well, there you have it. Uh Tom, what was the, the, the one or two things that struck you as the most interesting about that shot? What was really neat about that, first of all, was how all parties were unprepared for an election. I mean, they usually when a government uh, calls a snap election uh, before the days of fixed date elections, although current governments don't seem to be following them necessarily, um, uh, at least the government knew that an election was coming and they'd be prepared for it. In this case, nobody was prepared for it. Uh, the NDP leader... Uh, Howard Pauley had resigned, and so they had to elect a new leader during the RIP period. Um, really interesting, uh, Gary talking about uh, how they had to jump into that campaign. Everybody did, uh, unprepared. And But also, um, the discussion about how different campaigns were back then uh, compared to today with social media and the communication uh, devices we have today. You know, where Gary was talking about uh, in the interview where they'd be out on the road um, and they'd just do miles and miles. You know, this is before social media, before cell phones, and, and they'd stop along the way. You know, he's talking about how they'd stop along the way and have to make a phone call, find a, a pay phone somewhere to see what, what was going on in the campaign. Like, did the NDP put out a press release on this, and if so, what did they say? Because we're going to this town hall meeting in 30 minutes, and we got to know what's going on. Yeah. And there's no Twitter, you know. And well, see, when I when I travel with the leaders, I miss that because I was in a in a in a gas station trying to get my acoustic couplers attached to a telephone receiver to try and send a story back. I mean, it was it's amazing now when we think about like how communications has changed journalism. Um, and uh, how much easier it is to uh, to sort of communicate. Um, we're probably getting near the end of our... We don't have a lot of time. That's the dangerous <laughs> thing about podcasts. 
but uh, I think that that uh, brings us mercifully to the end of uh, our third episode. Uh, I want to thank Tom Broadbeck, Jessica Batella-Urbanski, and my name is Dan Lett, and this was the third episode of Not For Attribution. We will be coming back with one more episode during the campaign period, uh, probably on the Monday before uh, Mm -hmm. the 9th of September, before uh, we go to the polls on September the 10th. And uh, if you really don't like politicians, you want to piss them off, show up to vote. That'll, That'll... really throw a wrench into into this election if you can think of that you know do it on that note thank you very much for tuning in and we will see you in one week's time <laughs>